happen. Well, thank you all for coming to today's information session uh, on this brand new grant program to fund innovative projects in Jewish chaplaincy. We're very excited uh, both to, to have the opportunity to, to do this program, but also that you're here to join us and learn a little bit more about uh, what we are seeking to fund, what an application should look like. Uh, we will talk about some of the technical side of things that, as we have framed it, but you probably have lots of questions too. So we will have plenty of time for that at the end. Uh, what we'll do today is Wendy Cadge will introduce the project. McCall is going to speak a little bit more about kind of the overall aim. And then uh, Grace Last and I will talk some of those logistics and technicalities and then we'll open it. We want most of the time to be for you so that we can answer uh, as many questions as you have. So welcome all. Thank you for being here. Wendy, introduce the project for us. Perfect. Thank you, Michael and McCall and Grace. Always great to be here with you and with all of you who are listening in. Um, so we're really grateful to be partnering with the Charles H. Revson Foundation and Lizzie Cram, our program officer, to make it possible for some of you to apply for and receive grants to en enlarge the work of Jewish chaplaincy. So this initiative came out of the mapping project that we also did uh, with Lizzie and Revson's support over the last two years. That is the first national mapping of where Jewish chaplains in the U.S. are doing their work, who they are, what their opportunities and constraints and challenges are in the field. And I can put the link to some of those things. Um, in the chat. We always in the lab are focused on trying to innovate and trying to create possibilities and expand the work that chaplains do on the ground. And so this project is really intended to do just that. It has two pieces. The main piece is what we're going to be talking about today, which is these demonstration grants. So the hope here is to enable Jewish chaplains that are doing their work in new, creative, different places to apply for and receive grants to pilot or develop demonstration projects. We're very clearly biased towards projects that we think will be able to continue moving forward. So our hope is not to supplement things that are already in process or to start things that have no chance of success beyond. We're really always trying to think about building infrastructure and building capacity and are looking for projects that will enable that to be the case. Now saying that and then determining if your project fits in that bucket are two different things. And I'm gonna turn it to McCall to help me with that in a second. I do wanna say that every project we fund will be supported by a mentor who has some experience creative, creating and then sustaining programs. And the hope is that that relationship will make these projects even more successful. The second piece of this project, which McCall will also say a bit about, is bringing together and being in continued conversation with educators uh, who are doing the teaching of much of this work in Jewish seminaries and rabbinical schools. And again, we're trying to sort of build and expand the capacity of the field to do the work that we all know is so needed on the ground. McCall, can I turn it to you? Thanks, Wendy. Hello, everybody. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much for your interest in the demonstration projects. And uh, again, a big thank you to the Charles H. Revson Foundation and Lizzie Lyman Cryum. Um, we are thrilled to have the opportunity to find the right projects out in the world and to encourage you. We know that so many people bring great creativity to Jewish chaplaincy, and it's an under-focused on field. Uh, Wendy has taken great leadership in helping us think about the field as a whole, and this really is the next step in thinking about what could you do if you had some support in doing it, both financial and with a mentor. So we're looking for creativity, we're looking for projects that have never been attempted before, because this is the right moment for them, whatever that means. 
So we'll ha we're happy to answer your questions. And we are looking to create more of a community to sustain this work so that we can learn from these projects. What do we understand about the capacity of the field, about directions we could be going in, about resources that might be needed? So everyone who receives one of the demonstration project grants will have a mentor to work with and um, will also come to this newly created forum for Jewish, past, Jewish seminary pastoral educators. The forum has met once and will be meeting quarterly um, so that you will be able to uh, amplify the work that you're doing with the project and thinking about similar projects or um, pathways that could enrich the field further. So we're looking both specifically at the work of a, a given project and also what it has to teach us about what could happen in the field more broadly going forward. So I'm gonna turn it over to you, Michael and Grace. Great, thank you very much, Nicole. What Grace and I are going to do right now is just go over some of what we think are going to be the frequently asked questions here. Uh, we're sure it's not comprehensive, uh, but we're going to run through that information very quickly. You might want to just make some notes here. The fact that you're all here means that you you sort of get it for most of these, but we want to clarify them so that you can be thinking about how that might uh, shape your application. So we'll go through these. These are all very technical questions, and then we'll turn it over to all of you and you can ask uh, whatever comes to mind for you. So Grace, why don't you take the first batch of those questions? Sounds good. Right, so um, the first question we have here is, what's the purpose of this project? This program for Jewish chaplaincy demonstration projects will support creative and evidence-based ways Jewish chaplains can meet the demand for innovative spiritual and emotional support for people who are underserved by current systems of delivering spiritual care. Projects that are only about educating Jewish chaplains will not be considered. This effort aims to expand the number and types of people Jewish chaplains are serving on the ground. All right, next question we have here is who can apply then? So project teams that, that include an executive or a high-level organizational leader and a Jewish chaplain, including a, an executive or a high-level or organizational leader who is actively involved in championing the project will ensure institutional support for the work of the chaplain and appropriate infrastructure to receive and process funds. All proposals must come from ex existing 501c3 organizations in the United States. So what do you mean here by evidence-based? Lots of people have those questions. Uh, so here we have uh, this refers to projects and the interventions for which there is existing empirical evidence that there will be or or are likely to be successful. So you might be wondering, uh, what does application require? Uh, first and foremost, only US-based nonprofit organizations with a 501c3 designation are eligible to apply for subawards. And approval of 501c3 status is required. And then we will need resume or CV for both cha the chaplain and app administrator applying, a letter of commitment signed by the organization and, organi and the or organization appointed financial administrator to establish project management responsibility. Your, the audited financial statement or sync audit from your organization, a 2000 word project proposal, a 1000 word description of project outcomes and evaluations, and then of course, project budget and budget narrative. And you can find those templates um, uh, on the application form if you uh, click into it. 
So who should mentor my project? When you talk, talk about, you know, there'll be mentors, we invite applicants to su suggest a possible mentor and we'll think carefully about the best matches in the selection process. Then again, people might be asking, can I apply if I'm not part of an existing 501c3 organization? No, if you are not uh, part of an existing 501c3 organization, you cannot apply. All right, Michael. Thank you very much. And Grace, as you are reading these, I'm looking at some questions. I realize we need to add just a few details uh, to our page, and we'll certainly do that. Uh, and don't worry about writing all this down as we're talking. Uh, it's on the website, and we will send it out as part of the follow-up email, probably tomorrow. And so you'll always have access um, to all of this information. Two clarifications really quick that aren't on the page yet. Uh, so the application needs to come from a US 501c3. And all the work has to be done in the United States. I know there's a little bit of uh, crossover there with some organizations that have a, an American 501 that they do their work elsewhere. Uh, but the application has to come from an, an American 501 and the work has to be done uh, here in the United States. Uh, a few questions. Actually, you know what? We'll hold off on that. Keep those questions coming. I'll go through this and then we'll, uh, we'll come to your questions at the end. There's a lot of really good ones in there as well. So what will not be funded? What does not qualify for this? Uh, we definitely don't want applications to come in that are for existing programs in an organization. Uh, if you have an immediate budget deficit, this is not intended to sort of meet that gap. Uh, and of course, you can't use this for political advocacy. That's just um, that that's for all 501s, not just this program. Uh, if you are experienced with uh, grant funding, you might be at wondering uh, what is the indirect cost policy for this or the FNA cost policy for this. Uh, so that limit is going to be 10% for your institution. Some important dates. Uh, we have the information session right now. Applications are all due on April 13th. That is a Friday, I think, April the 13th at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's firm. <laughs> it's very firm. <laughs> Please get all of your materials in April 13th, 5 p.m. Eastern. We just have to have some sort of cutoff that we can then um, go to deliberation after that. We will make all of the decisions by May 15th, uh, and you will actively hear whether you were chosen or not. You will hear something one way or the other. Um, we'll make it on or before May 15th, 15th. So if you haven't heard anything by then, don't worry. That doesn't mean anything. I will make all the decisions right around then. The timeline of your exact project, uh, you should start by July 1st of this year, 2023, and you should be done by June 30th, 2024. Just for accounting purposes, what gets funded, the work has to take place in, that's our fiscal year, July 1st to June 30th of next year. Uh, and then that funding will literally be dispersed in two phases, July 1st, 2023 this year and January 5th, 2024. So kind of six month intervals there. Will there be another round of applications? Uh, at this point, no, this is a one round program. And so we'll consider all of them uh, right here at the beginning. Your contact persons uh, for any questions that you might have. Anything that has to do with finances, budgeting, uh, sort of the structure of your of your you know particular application or who is signing it or whatever, all of that should go to Grace. And then if you have questions about content, things like that, those will come to me, and we can always refer those out to other people if we need to as well. And it doesn't you know if if you sort of write to someone else, 
the opposite person will get your question to the right place. Uh, so don't worry about that. Uh, there is one of the FAQs that's really long, so I'm not going to read it here, on how the decisions will be made for funding. Uh, and that just gives you an idea of the questions that we are going to have in mind as we are looking through all of these applications. Um, so I'll include that in the follow-up email. You can always go check that out as well. And then in terms of who is going to be reviewing those applications, that's going to be a committee of four people, Wendy, McCall, and then our colleague Sarah Pashorlo and Bethany Horowitz, uh, who is also doing some work with us on this as well. So it'll be a committee of four looking through all of those. They'll have about a month to do that, and then we will uh, go through and make those announcements. All right, those are our FAQs. Now I'll look in the uh, the question, the chat here. You can also use the Q&A function on Zoom if you like as well. I see there's a few in there. Uh, one thing I keep seeing scrolling, scrolling past is what counts as a Jewish chaplain? Um, we take a pretty broad description of that term. Uh, you know, sort of the only, and Wendy, you can, Wendy McCall, you can correct me here, but I think we're going to be really broad there. It's only if it's obviously not Jewish chaplaincy that would disqualify you. Um, certainly, if you identify as Jewish and are doing any sort of work that you would consider chaplaincy, that counts. Wendy, is there a better way of phrasing that? I don't think so, McCall. Yeah, we have a, a broad tent here. You know, really, I, I think if you ask yourself, am I doing Jewish chaplaincy, you're going to know one way or the other, and that kind of project would definitely uh, qualify here. Um, let's keep going through the questions. Is this only for board certified chaplains? No, uh, we don't. We're not making any restrictions based on credentials, units of CPE, whatever. Um, if you're doing Jewish chaplaincy work, you qualify. Um, that would not be a, a limiting factor of any of your um, of any of your application. Uh, is the budget for the what if the budget is less than forty thousand dollars? Can we still apply? Of course, um, we would encourage you to try to get the maximum amount, uh, but you can certainly apply for for less than that uh, if you would like. Uh, does the program have to only serve Jewish people? I'm thinking the answer is no. <laughs> it's anyone that is doing. <laughs> this makes sense to me on an instinctual level, but Wendy and McCall, maybe you can speak to this better. We're saying Jewish chaplaincy, but it doesn't have to be just for Jewish people. So we know that chaplaincy exists in organizations that are not, that don't primarily identify as religious organizations which means that chaplains are always bridging worlds and we're sensitive to that here. So we, we're gonna figure out which projects enable us to best meet unmet need. And if you're passionate about something and from your perspective, this is Jewish chaplaincy, um, then we're that the field of Jewish chaplaincy, which sometimes is Jews providing care to Jews, and sometimes is people who are not Jewish providing care to Jews, and sometimes is people who are Jewish providing cares care beyond the Jewish community. I might follow up on McCall's comments to say that you know the working paper that we wrote spent we spent a lot of time um, with Beth Me Horowitz and others 
trying to lay out all of the ways that um, Jewish chaplains do work, others do work to serve Jews. There is no clear answer to what Jewish chaplaincy is any more that there's a clear any more than there is a clear answer to what Catholic chaplains or humanist chaplains do. So I would encourage you to skim through the working paper. There's no answer there because this is actually not a question we think is answerable. And we're much more concerned about where there is unmet need in the world that people who consider themselves to be doing the work of Jewish chaplaincy can meet than in telling any of you whether particular definitions fit or not. Our goal is to stimulate projects that are connected to the work of Jewish chaplaincy that will meet unmet need. And I think that that's the kind of biggest priority. It doesn't answer in a black and white way any of the questions in the chat for which I apologize, um, but that is what we're trying to do. Eliza asks a good question. What makes Jewish chaplaincy Jewish? Is it simply the self-identity of the chaplain? Yes, I mean, and I think no. <laughs> if you are a Jewish chaplain, then of course. But if you're a non-Jewish chaplain, but you're working in a Jewish community center, and and <laughs> I would say that I'm more interested in reading proposals in seeing what the argument is about unmet need and showing how people who are in the realm of Jewish chaplaincy would be able to meet that need. And I would rather read arguments about unmet need and how Jewish chaplains or those who have done the work can help to meet that need than to get involved in any, or frankly, read any long explanations about whether something is or is not Jewish chaplaincy. We're trying to solve problems on the ground and we need you to tell us what the problem is, motivate, explain why that's a problem, and explain how, with resources, people involved in the work of Jewish chaplaincy can intervene or make some difference in that problem or issue or challenge, and how, if this is successful, it might be sustained going forward. I don't know if that helps, but that's how I think about it. That sustainability moving forward is really important. Um, obviously, no one can guarantee this is going to be a huge success and it's going to be a permanent feature of our facility or institution or whatever. No one can predict that. Um, but if, you know, if we were to get a proposal that says we're going to do this for a year and then we're done, that's not going to succeed because we want we want this to be an intervention that A, helps people now and B, looks like it could, it could feasibly keep helping people into the future. We want this to be a seed, not just a one off. Uh, Bruce, great technical question. For indirect costs, what does for your institution mean? Does that mean our organization provides 10% of in-kind support? Uh, no, by that I mean when you submit your application, which has a budget, no more than 10% of that budget can be for your institution to administer the grant. So for those indirect, overhead, FNA, whatever, um, for your grant, 90% of it has to be for the actual work of the grant no more than 10 for your organization that's receiving the funds to administer it. Michael, let me hop on that one because I see a set of questions in the chat about who's eligible. So Brandeis University is only able to give sub-grants, which is essentially what these are, sub-awards, to 501c3s. We have in the past figured out a way to get money to the Department of Veterans Affairs, but it was very complicated. So we need you to be a 501c3, or be partnering with a 501c3. 
If you are not employed by the 501c3, but the senior leader that you're applying with is employed by the 501c3, and that senior leader has agreed to receive and be responsible for the funds on your behalf, I think we will consider that. We would prefer to have applications coming from people who are employed by 501c3s because we have a fiscal uh, obligation to the Revson Foundation, and in turn, the recipients of these projects will have um, fiscal responsibilities to us, and we need the infrastructure of the 501c3. This is hard, as I mentioned, with government entities, including I saw a question, I think, about state prisons. Sometimes they will have a separate arm through which grants can be received, but you need to do the due diligence on that on your side before you submit to us because we've gotten in a bind with it in the past. And part of the reason that we are actually requiring in the application that someone who is eligible or authorized to sign off to receive grants from the institution that will receive the grant, they have to sign before you apply because we need you all to do the due diligence before you submit your application to make sure that you're gonna be able to receive the funds. Um, I hope that that makes sense. And um, you know we can talk more about it if it doesn't. And if you have any doubt about your organization's status, find an accountant and say, do we have a 501c3 letter? <laughs> if the answer is no, you're not a 501c3, but they will certainly know uh, one way or the other. All right, lots of really good questions here. Um, are there target populations that chaplains serve that are of particular priority to the funders? Uh, not by any sort of demographic framing. It's just people who are typically underserved in terms of spiritual care. There, now, this is like so many other things. There is no one definition for that. That's part of the application. Um, there are lots of ways that you could define underserved. Um, but for instance, you know, if, if you were to submit a program, uh, an application to fund, you know, sort of, um, you know, an educational program for a stable Jewish congregation, that's not an underserved population in the definition of this program. It's, it's people that would not otherwise have access um, to, to quality spiritual care. Uh, can the program be a new organizational interdepartmental partnership between professionals? Lots of words there. Uh, chaplaincy, social work, lawyers. Yes, that's fine. Um, as long as the work is is chaplaincy oriented, um, you know, we wouldn't want to fund a, a legal clinic or anything like that. But it's not like you only have to have chaplains on your team. Uh, it's just uh, the chaplain has to be sort of the main focus and the one doing most of the work there. Uh, is a project that mostly serves Jews eligible? Yes, absolutely. Uh, they just have to be uh, sort of lacking adequate spiritual care, and you would define you would define lacking in your proposal. Uh, clarify the language around not funding for new hires in the FAQs. Um, that language is essentially uh, the purpose of that is this is not meant to hire one new chaplain for an, ex an existing program, right? It's not to to increase capacity for something that you're already doing. Uh, we're aware that you might engage somebody on a temporary basis here, uh, but we would not want to see that this is going to be, you know, you're using this grant to partially fund a permanent hire's salary for the year because this money is going to go away at the end of that year. And now what are you going to do with that person that you just hired? So we, we don't want to set somebody up essentially to fail after a year because this funding is, is expected to keep going. Michael, let me add a few things on that one. So 
the reason that we're saying we're not looking to fund new hires is because we're wanting to think about sustainability and this just, just isn't enough money to do that. Yeah. And so if you want to use these funds to free up some of somebody's time for temporary coverage so that you can, you know, try to meet particular goals and you can show us how that will be sustainable, we're looking for the argument you make. And the we're just trying to ensure that people don't hire someone for six months, think that person's going to make a big difference in six months. But even if they make a big difference, there's no funds to continue the program. That's not a compelling argument about sustainability. So the, the rule, so to speak, about no, no, no new hires is in the context of wanting you to make arguments about how the work will be sustainable. And if there are other funds that your institution might match, or there's a local Jewish Family Foundation or someone else who might contribute to, we're trying to encourage you to think about how to build a sustainable approach that will enable this to go forward rather than a one and done, if that is helpful. There were some questions also I saw in the chat about indirects and staff salary. Indirects and staff salary are two completely different things, and Grace can help you think about that um, privately if helpful. The indirects is, is a separate line that is part of how you write grants when you're writing um, these sorts of proposals. And clarifying that also raises the point that we we want to see this these applications come in with a very clear and clearly committed institutional champion for this project, um, because we want to make sure that for the chaplain that's doing this work, that you're spending most of your time actually on the project and not working on administration or trying to figure out, you know, how do we handle the budget? How do we pay contractors or whatever? This debt, this needs to have a very definite sort of safe person within the institution that's going to handle the financial logistical side of it, um, which is a, a nice way of saying, please don't just get a signature from somebody that doesn't really know what they're signing. Uh, we want to see teams that are committed to working together and someone in the institution in a leadership position who is going to be uh, sort of really supporting this all the way through. Um, there was a really good question I wanted to answer. Um, is there a max? That's what that's what it was. Is there a maximum amount that can be used to compensate contractors not employed by the organization? Um, there's not a, a hard and fast rule for that. We would just look at the budget and see what it is. Um, you know, if your budget was for 95% is going to be spent on contractors, that's that's going to raise more questions than it answers. But there's no hard and fast limit. Just send, send the proposal as you think it needs to be done. Uh, Stephen asked about audited fiscal statements or financials. That's one of those questions. It's really easy. You go to the accountants and say, where's the audited financials? And they'll send you exactly what they need. Wendy, I think I stepped on your answer. No, I was going to hop in because there were a few questions about what makes something evidence-based. And I'm a sociologist, so this is a question close to my heart. Um, I think that we all have lots of good ideas of things that might make a difference, and we are more inclined to fund something that there is some study, some evidence, some data that suggests will work than is something that I thought of this morning while I was brushing my teeth. And again, it's not that those ideas you know, that I have when I'm brushing my teeth are not great ideas. I'll tell you, they're wonderful ideas. But if I'm giving money, and again, I'm trying to build capacity and sustainability and change in a longer term, I'm going to be more inclined, and we are more inclined to fund those for which there is some 
research, some evidence. It doesn't need to be exactly on this topic. So you might look at what some of the research liter literature suggests about you know, chaplaincy outcomes in other settings or the effects of social service provisions on perhaps a particular population that you're identifying as is in need. So it's not that you have to pull out the article that says this exact program that I want to run has been done this way and will work. But we are looking for some argument about the likely effectiveness of the program that you're proposing. That's what evidence-based means. Ron has a great question about reporting requirements. Uh, and thank you for that, because this has to do with how much time are you going to have to spend administering this project. Uh, for reporting requirements, there will be two basic components to that. So one's going to be the budget. That'll go to Grace. And it's very that's going to be very straightforward. Here's how much we said we were going to spend at this period. And here's how much we actually spent and what we think the future is going to look like. That's the money side of it. And then the narrative side, we'll have a template for you to fill out. Don't worry about that. But the narrative side is going to look like, here's what we said we were going to do in this period. Here's what actually happened. And here maybe were some barriers or some unexpected you know, surprises or whatever. And here's how we think the rest of the program is going to go. Um, so there will be reporting requirements. We do want to see progress. We do want to see thought about this. We want to make sure that it hasn't just been forgotten. Um, but we don't want those requirements to be onerous. We don't want them to detract from the actual work um, of the project. Uh, Rachel, I don't know that I understand your question. Our nonprofit is run by chaplains. Can we submit on behalf of our nonprofit? Um, Wendy, do you understand the question? If you have a 501c3 status and are registered as a nonprofit, you can submit a proposal. Who runs the nonprofit is less important than that you have that legal standing. That I'm not sure I understand the question, but that's the best answer that I can try. The mentors will be available through the duration of the grant. Um, there have been a few questions in the chat about research. So this is tricky. We are not aiming to fund research projects. We're aiming to fund projects that are going to have some impact on the ground. So I would say you cannot use most of the money for research. I think you could make a pretty good argument to use some of the money to assess the effectiveness of your intervention. So I think what I'm saying is research could be a part of the proposal, but not most of the proposal, because these are not research grants in the same way that these are actually these are not grants to fund or support the education of Jewish chaplains. They are mainly to support the work that Jewish chaplains are doing. I did try to answer the question about VA and email Grace or Michael if it's not clear because it's a very complicated answer. Uh, uh, Sherry, you asked, what about Jewish spiritual directors? Um, if you're a chaplain who does some spiritual direction, we don't really care about that, to be frank, uh, but this is not intended to support spiritual direction. Uh, that's not the purpose of this program. Uh, are there instances where the committee will like the idea, pick the application, but you want to revise it a bit with direction? Um, we're not in a position to go back and forth with, you know, sort of a revise and resubmit. If there is an application that looks very strong in lots of ways, but there are just one or two things that we're curious about, we might reach out to ask to clarify that. Uh, but we, we're not in a position to either ask people to revise or to, to review it again. So it will be fairly straightforward in that way. Any advice about the research or analytics you are looking for? Um, 
anything that indicates the impact of the project. And that's one of those things that you get to define for better or worse. Um, we just would like to have some indication of, of what that looks like. Sometimes that means there are going to be hard and fast numbers and other times they're going to be less hard and fast and that's okay. Uh, but we just need to know something beyond, you know, we felt really good about this project or, or whatever. We, we want to know that, that it, that had some impact. And sometimes that answer is we thought we were going to serve a thousand people and it ended up only being 200. And if that's the finding, that's the finding. You know, you, you can't predict how that's going to happen. Uh, but in terms of those research or analytics, it doesn't need to be anything fancy. We just want to see that it actually had um, an impact in the community. Will the program be renewable? No, these are not renewable. These are one-time grants. What else? What Michael, there are a few in a Q&A as well. Uh, please clarify about mentors. Do you match us? Are we expected to bring our own? Wendy? Uh, we will match. You're not expected to bring your own. You're welcome. I think in the proposal, in the application, there's a line where you can suggest people, but you shouldn't go out and ask people or get that all set up. Um, that's part of our job on our side. Uh, is there an amount range for the grants or an average grant size? Um, we would like to make four grants of $40,000. That would be absolutely ideal. I guess there is a hypothetical chance that, you know, we give, maybe there are two applications for $20,000 grants that we could do, but uh, that gets complicated. And, and to be quite frank, for an impactful program, lower amounts make it really, really difficult. So you should you should shoot for the highest amount possible on these. Uh, Michael, I'll just, I'll say that again. What kind of reporting is required at the end, financial and narrative? What are you hoping to find out? Um, I think you, you probably get it very well. We'll need to see a budget report, how the money has been spent, and then a narrative report, you know, whether the experience of the grant matched up with what you proposed, what the impact was, um, all that sort of thing. I will say, um, whether you are highly experienced with grant applications, or you, this is your first one, we don't make any distinction between those two. So it's not like, you know, if you, you should be forthcoming. You should ask questions. If you don't know how to do this or that, you should just ask. That's not going to be a disqualifier at all. Um, and we've seen that in the past. Some people do this all the time and others never have. And that's okay. Uh, whatever whatever works for you. Uh, what is the deadline for when it would need to start? Could it start as late as January 1st, 2024? No, the, the work needs to start by July 1st of this year. Uh, please say again, is this only to impact Jewish patients, families, and staff, or does Jewish chaplains who are leading the project? Uh, it does not need to be confined to a Jewish population. Um, that's part of your definition process in the application. Um, we would we would assume that we're going to see Jewish chaplains doing this work, but it does not need to be only Jewish populations who are being served. Do you have to be an employee of the 501 or do you is having an umbrella okay, a 501c3 umbrella okay? Uh, having the umbrella is fine. We just need to be 
totally convinced in the application that that 501 is is able to receive the funds, spend them out properly. We want to make sure that the partnership is very close there. Um, it just gets really complicated otherwise. So it's it's fine to do that, but you just need to make very clear that you have a good working relationship and the funds are going to flow through the way that they're supposed to. Miriam, it's a good question, a project we'd be excited to fund. Um, we won't know that until we see the applications. <laughs> we could come up with projects all day long, uh, but we want to know what makes the most sense for your community. Uh, could the July 1st timeline include a planning process? No, um, we would need to know what you're you would need to know what you're going to do by that start date. Um, and, and really, I think any of the planning that you're referring to in your question, that's going to be part of your application process. So I can imagine maybe a few variables that you wouldn't know prior to starting the project, but otherwise you, you, you really need to know what you were going to do and when before the, before the work actually begins. If capital funds are needed for the program, is there a percent limit we should keep in mind? Um, that's a good question. And I think that that sort of gets to whether we would make this grant as part of a, a larger project. Um, we wouldn't rule that out, but we would not grant the funds absent a guarantee that other funds had already been committed, right? So we don't wanna say, we don't want to say yes conditionally because we don't have the capacity to come back and circle around and see who has raised the rest of the funding or whatever. So, you know, if you have an application, you've got the idea and and we are the last $40,000 you need, then yes, we're ready to go. Uh, but if you have lots of conditional applications, that's not something that we're uh, that we're positioned to fund. What if our first training will be in October, but we have been planning for the past several months, which will, who will go through the first training? Your project activities have to start by July 1st. Um, <laughs> that's it. Uh, how many applications do you typically receive or is there a number you anticipate? We don't have, there's no way of guessing. Um, we've done a number of these programs in the past and sometimes we get far fewer than we expected. Sometimes we get way more than we expect. We don't know. Uh, that's why we've given ourselves a month to process whatever does come through. How many of us are on the call? <laughs> there are about 90 people. And this is also being recorded. So you can always go back and watch again, or if you want other people in your team to watch, you can, you can share that with them. Trying to see if there are any questions that have not been answered directly or indirectly. Michael, there's still one in the q and and I'm not sure if you guys have addressed that already. It's from David Kaplan. Hi, David. I think I tried to answer your question in the chat. If my answer is still not clear, email us. Can you please expand on the concept of a new project? 
Um, that'll be part of the proposal and your definitions. Um, it should pretty clearly not be something you were doing right now. It's okay if you say we've had this idea for a long time and just didn't have the capacity to do it. That's okay. It, it's, you know, you don't have to prove to us that you didn't think of it until February 13th. Um, but for instance, you know, let's say you have a home visiting program and you want to hire someone part-time to do more of that. That's not a new program. Um, but if there is an idea that you've had to reach a population that you haven't reached before, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, um, people experiencing homelessness or something like that, um, something that you are substantially not doing right now. Is there a size of Jewish community or Jewish population density that is preferred? No. Um, we don't have any hard and fast rules on that. There are no hard and fast rules on how many people you have to serve or what the population number looks like. We want to see impact. Um, you know, you would not have a successful application if you said we're going to train two people to be, you know, sort of chaplains in training. Um, that's that's probably not going to do a whole lot. Uh, but there is no hard rule on on what that looks like. Stephen says, what are the backgrounds of the mentors? I'm going to leave that to Wendy and McCall to answer. That one's McCall's. Um, we want to make sure that the mentors are really well matched to what the project is. So um, we have some loose ideas. We, we know that there are a lot of talented people out there, but we're going to have to wait and see um, because we our goal is for the mentor to be as helpful as possible, which will depend on what the nature of the grants are. Uh, Sharon is asking for um, expansion on evidence-based. Um, so, you know, we're not expecting that you go out and you find 10 peer-reviewed articles about the exact thing that you want to do. We know that probably doesn't exist. Uh, but let's say your program is going to address social isolation. There's lots of research on that. Uh, or if your, re if your project is going to address um, helping people who have experienced trauma not end up in situations of homelessness, there's lots of research on that. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to mean that your program has already been proven to work. Um, we just need to see some research that indicates that what you want to do is in the realm of possibility for helping the people that you want to help. Uh, if the unmet need you propose has been met in another community, can you still propose it? Yes, of course. Um, if there is, you know, an example of what you want to do that's been done somewhere else and you want to do it where you are, that's fine. Um, it just, it shouldn't be the same population because that's, and then it's not really an unmet need anymore. Um. Will we send the recording? Yes. So you will get sort of a comprehensive follow-up email probably tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. They take some time to put together, but it'll have the recording. It'll have all the FAQs. It'll have the link to the application, uh, the link to the project website, this recording. You can send it on to other people. It'll have our contact information. So when you watch out for that email and when you get it, that that can be sort of your, your resource as you look, uh, as you fill out your um, proposal. Michael, should we talk a little bit more about these hiring deadlines? Would that be sure. helpful? I just see questions. I mean, the grants are going to start at a particular point. They're only 12 months long, right? They're a certain duration. And so we want to see you able to get to work. 
Um, it's not like we're going to ask you on a certain date to report who you've hired and things like that. But I think that we are more inclined to fund projects that will enable people to get to work because time is limited than those in which there is a long planning process. Although we've all hired people and we understand that that can take a little bit of time. So I don't want anyone to be hearing a bright line there. It's more just that we are trying to enable the money to be kind of put into process um, as quickly as possible and to then move on from there. I don't know, Michael, if that is helpful or you wanna say it's something in a different way. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, Judy says, is there an advantage if your 501c3 is a Jewish organization? No, not particularly. Um, lots of good Jewish chaplaincy is done in Jewish 501s and there is good Jewish chaplaincy being done in non-Jewish 501s. So we don't we don't draw that distinction there. Uh, is there a particular structure for the proposal and outcome evaluation? Uh, do we determine exactly what goes in it? I don't see a specific form. Um, if it's not live yet, we will make it live. There is a, it just it'll you'll click through to an application that will have very specific steps that you will go through. And if you have questions as you go through that, you can always reach out and we'll help you. We'll help you do that. Uh, Karen, that's a really good question that you ask because we're being so fuzzy about the Jewish definition here. Um, I would encourage you to go to our website. Uh, and if you search for the term leading where life happens, or maybe Grace or Wendy can put it in the chat while I'm talking here. This is building on a previous program that we did that sort of mapped out where Jewish chaplains are in the United States, where they're working, where the need is being unmet that Jewish chaplains otherwise would like to be in. That might give you a better sense of where this is coming from. Can an organization submit more than one application? Um, I'm going to say no, <laughs> uh, because organizations have different capacities, and so it wouldn't be fair to the organizations that you know maybe it's you know just one or two chaplains or just one part-time chaplain that that stacks the deck a little bit. So one organization, one application. You know, there's one piece of this we haven't mentioned that I just might um, add here, which is that when we were working on the working paper about mapping Jewish chaplains, we did a set of interviews with Jewish communal leaders to try to understand how they understand Jewish chaplaincy, see the work of Jewish chaplains, partner with Jewish chaplains to do the work. And we were a bit surprised to see that there actually are not a lot of strong relationships there. So we talked to people involved in some of the Jewish mental health services where there are some relationships, Jewish camps, other kinds of places. And that's those are the kinds of partnerships that we think could be built to build capacity for Jewish chaplaincy more broadly. We were surprised. And actually, since we've done a national survey about all chaplaincy, I'm now less surprised. But um, what part of what we're trying to think about is how to build the, the gap, the, the connection between demand for the work and thinking that chaplains are the people who can do that work. And so if you read or just skim through the working paper and pay particular attention to um, some of those employ or those interviews with other leaders in the Jewish world and how they do and don't think about Jewish chaplains when they're thinking about challenges to their organizations, it might help um, some of this conversation. And Wendy, as you say that, I think one of the revisions that we'll make to the FAQ will link directly to that working paper. That's a great place to start 
that's actually a really good place to start. If you want to know the the sort of the the mindset that we are in for what we are hoping to fund, that working paper is a great place to start because it's going to tell you here is where we have identified where Jewish chaplaincy is working. And here is where we have identified that there is a big gap between chaplains who are ready to do the work and people who need spiritual care. So I'll link that on the page and I'll send that in the follow-up email. And you, know, you, can, you can breeze through that in half an hour and you'll have a good idea of what we're looking for. Judy says, so Jewish is just a label and not a specific philosophy or definition. I don't want to reduce it, um, but we're also, we don't want to get down in the weeds of fighting over self-ascribed definitions. Uh, you know, now if someone sends an application and they say, I'm Father McGillicuddy and I'm working with Catholic soldiers, well, no, you're not doing Jewish chaplaincy. Uh, but we don't want we don't want to get involved into some of the the arguments that can that can crop up from time to time over what counts and what doesn't. I hope that's clear. <laughs> uh, Jake, good distillation here. Uh, you're asking, does it have to be brand new, not incorporate any pre-existing services, ready to start by July 1st, and serve a population not currently served by the 501. Um, you can incorporate some stuff that you're already doing. Um, again, there's no bright line there, but it has to be a substantially new intervention in your community. I feel like that's an attorney's way of answering it, but it has to be substantially new. Um, it's not that your that your target population has to be completely new to you, that you've never had contact with them before, but if you believe they are underserved in some way, put that in the proposal. It doesn't have to be folks that you've never had contact with, but if you know you could be doing more for them, that should be part of it. Uh, Lisa, the 501 is US-based, but does the work have to be in the US? Yes, all the work needs to be done in the United States. Um, that's just to make the project a little bit more manageable on our end. And also because just the, the frames of reference get to be so different once you leave the United States. And so we wanna, we wanna keep that all in one area. Can it be a partnership with two 501s? Sure, that's fine. Um, but one needs to do the application, one needs to receive the funding. That can be ideally the same one. Um, the partnership just needs to be very clear and we need to know who's receiving the money, who's spending the money, and we need to make sure from your application that you're clear on that too. So sure, partnership is fine. Uh, anonymous question. This is a good question. I wish I had a better answer for you. We have a couple ideas. Is there a way that we can talk through them? We don't have the capacity for that. I would love to do that. I would love to hear the ideas and I would love to offer feedback. All of us would, uh, but we are a very small grant team and we're doing this as part of all of our other responsibilities as well. So if we, if we begin discussing projects ahead of time, we could spend all 40 hours of the work week plus doing that. <laughs> Eliza, this is a great comment. I know it's not a question, but 
Uh, how or if can, can we convince Jewish communal leaders that Jewish chaplains are the solutions to their problems? Good projects are, the good, are gonna give us that proof. That's why we want them. <laughs> we wanna say here are great projects that were carried out by Jewish chaplains and it's why you should hire more. We still have a few minutes left. Happy to answer questions. Can you say more about the sustainability part of the application? That's a really good point. Um, I feel like we keep saying there are no hard answers and we're not trying to dance around it or be vague on purpose. Um, again, we know that there's that there's no way to predict the future and you can't say, we know we're gonna get a million dollar grant next year. We're gonna do this for in perpetuity. We know that's not possible, but we want to know that the method or the intervention or the program that you are proposing is feasible beyond the life of this grant. Um, you know, it, it can't be something where you are, you know, I don't know, you're buying a one-year license to some sort of educational program. That's one year, it's gonna end and it's not sustainable. Um, but if it is something that you could conceivably fundraise for again in the future, or if it is very clear that your organization is eager for you to prove it, and then they'll help you fund it in the future, that's good too. Um, we just wanna see in the application that it is in the realm of possibility that this could continue into the future. Can an international organization apply if it is conducting work in the US and the money is directed through an American friends type organization? That is a complicated question. Um, I think that what you have just described is essentially, it's gonna function like an American organization applying. Um, if an American organization is receiving it and the work is being done in the United States, that's fine. Um, if you have an international relationship or footprint or wherever, that's that's none of our concern. Um, but the money has to go to an American 501. It has to be done in the United States. What's what's going on outside of that frame is is not our concern. Follow up on the sustainability. We don't have to say where the money will come from, but theoretically it could be funded by other grants and fundraising. Yes, that's a great that's a great way of putting it. I'm not I don't want to I'm not committing I'm not committing ourselves to anything here, but something like, uh, you know, um, my organization has informed us that if we can, if we can, you know, make an outreach to this many individuals and, and, and prove that they have been satisfied with our work, that they will build us into the budget for the next year or whatever. I'm totally making that up. I'm not committing us to anything, but that's the kind of thing that that's what sustainability looks like. Carrie says, what are your thoughts about training programs versus education for chaplains? Do you see a distinction between the two? Um, I think I would need more concrete examples to see the distinction between those two. Training is fine, um, but this, this, this is not meant to be only a training program. Um, if you have some sort of of sort a programmatic outreach idea in mind and along the way, 
You want to train some chaplains to do it? That's fine. But this is not primarily to train people. This is primarily direct service to an underserved population. If the project serves U.S. citizens in the U.S. and beyond, is it eligible? Um, we're not concerned about the citizenship status of the population as long as they are physically in the United States. Can the target population be interfaith families? Yes, no problem there. You know, one one final comment I'll make. We're coming to the top of the hour. If you have any questions, drop them in here so we can see it. Um, but on the contact point, Grace is there for logistics and finance. I'm here for content. Uh, I would say, and let me just try to get ahead of it now. Please do not send anything that boils down to, is my project a good idea or not? <laughs> uh, that's going to fall under sort of project review, which we're not in a position to do. But if it's something like, is my organization eligible? Is this sort of category okay on a budget? Of course, send it, send that our way. Uh, but I, I just, I want to get ahead of it now so that no one feels put out. We can't review applications ahead of time or do pre-review or anything like that. Uh, you've got to send them in and then we'll, we'll review them all at the same time. Wendy McCall, is there anything you want to close with? It's been really exciting to see how much interest there is and um, wish you great luck, energy, vibes as you work on these proposals, which we look forward to reading. Thank you all for being here and to Michael and Grace for all of their work helping us through. It's been really, I think, a fruitful and helpful session. And so now we finished the first date on the timeline. The next date, keep in mind, April 13th. April 13th, April 13th, 5 p.m. Folks, I'm the mean one. If it comes in at 5.01, no good. 5 p.m., <laughs> April 13th. We'll talk to you all later. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.